I thought that would be a good follow-up to our study last week because a lot of you responded and were um, very excited and convicted about what the Lord had done uh, as we studied, but it's a week later. And is that fire still burning? Are we still as worked up as we were last Sunday? Um, It's amazing what the Lord's done for us, and I thought that would be a good reminder. A good reminder of what God has done. This is the reality. This is the reality. And I, as we come to the study this morning, it just, I thought the message of that video was so crucial for us because it really leads us into what we're doing this morning. And I, you know, I was thinking about the video because there's a word in there that some um, people are offended by, and I hope you weren't, and if you were, I apologize. But the, the concept's very biblical. Paul says in Philippians 3 that everything that we attain here is dung. It's worthless compared to the knowledge of Christ. And as we come to this study this morning from the book of Romans, um, that that battle that's going on, that, that constant conflict between old and new, is right at the center of this concept of lukewarmness. And that battle centers in our mind, right in our mind. We're always fighting the lure of our old self. And we've talked about already this morning that Christ has delivered us from that, that Christ has exonerated that old self that was under bondage to sin, and yet it it doesn't go away. It keeps coming back and trying to attract us and trying to drag into our lives and trying to, to appeal to us, and the enemy is pervasive in that, and he tries to corrupt our mind and tries to influence us to abandon our commitment to the Lord and at at very best be lukewarm and at worst just drift completely away from the love of God. So these studies kind of go together because there's never a moment where the devil is not working to weaken and destabilize our faith. And he centers that attack on how we think, how we feel, how we react to, to all the emotional stimulus in our life. Let me give you an example from yesterday afternoon because I saw this right as I began to really earnestly um, get down to my study. I got a little piece of news as I was uh, as I was studying. I'd been reading and praying all throughout the week and taking little notes and and kind of getting some seed thoughts. But but as I really sat down in the afternoon to to get into the Word, I, I just got a little piece of news that kind of set me back emotionally. It wasn't really bad news. It was just something that that made my my mind start to wonder and and question and kind of and kind of feel uneasy. And I was immediately distracted. And immediately kind of felt discouraged, as if the 87th straight day of snow and gray wasn't enough. I needed more. And 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 I, it was amazing how quickly my mind started to play out kind of the negative scenarios and kind of and kind of the unlikely possibilities. And I started to feel kind of kind of uptight and distracted. And it took me a few minutes to recognize the irony of what was going on as I sat down to study our minds. That immediately as I sat down to sit with, with Romans 12, that, that the enemy had, had worked very hard and very aggressively and very quickly 
and, and with great precision to try to get me to wrestle with my faith and to try to doubt the certainty of God's provision and to hear temptations and, and words of other people and, and past experiences and all these kind of things that, that would distract me from what the Spirit was teaching me. And that one little incident really took me back to the essence of this study, that everything is a battle and that that battle is intense. Nothing's off limits in our lives. And the timing of how these things work to discourage us and to threaten to drive us away from the provision of the Lord is never coincidental. And we're not going to give the devil any credit this morning. He doesn't deserve any. But we need to understand that that he is a student of behavior. The devil can't read your mind. He's not omniscient, but he does watch. And he knows what will discourage us, and he knows what will distract us, and he wants us not to have a mind that is focused on the Lord. He wants to dis, uh, to, to diffuse any sense of God's power in my life. And, uh, and he's going to keep working in three areas. He's going to try to discourage us. He's going to try to um, cause doubt. And he's going to go after whatever causes disunity. These are the ways that he goes after our mind. He will try to continually discourage us because he knows that impacts our joy. And he knows that that incites us to think that the Lord doesn't really care and the Lord won't really provide. I know I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands. I know almost everybody, if not everybody, has dealt with that thought this week. God's not going to provide. God doesn't really care. And it's very subtle. And and we don't think, well, I've had great problems this week with thinking God doesn't care. I don't think we've dealt with that. I think it's been subtle. Lord, I don't know. Are you going to, are you going to, are you going to take care of this? And then the devil goes after our faith and he tries to undercut it and he creates doubt and he tries to compromise our confidence in the Lord. And then he wants to divide everything. Our marriages, our families, our church, but more than anything, and this is what we're going to get to this morning in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. The devil wants to divide our mind. He wants to divide our mind. Now, what does that mean, Paul? It means he wants to create conflict and disunity between our conviction and our practice. Because he can read the Bible, and he knows that the Bible says a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Now, here's what we need to understand about this. The enemy will almost always attack what is circumstantial, not what's theological. You need to hear that this morning because he's going to go after our circumstances. So we need to have a a very clear-minded analysis of the playing field and know the tactics and know the resources the Lord has provided for us to work against it. When, When I had that that kind of thought yesterday afternoon, I wasn't being attacked on the truth of the word because nobody's ever going to convince me that the word is not true. And I wasn't being convicted on my theology or what I believe. There, there was zero evidence provided that the Lord will not be sufficient and the Lord will not provide and the Lord isn't faithful and that he can't work all things together for good. Here's where the attack was. Listen now, it was on the potential of a problem. It was on the possibility that something might not work right. It was on the prospect 
of difficulty. And that's an effective temptation because our emotions are what tend to drive us. And our emotions are the areas of weakness. So, so faith goes from, uh, so our mind goes from, from certainty to ambiguity. And our mind goes from, from stability to insecurity. And that kind of shakes us. This is why faith is so important. Because faith is that bedrock of conviction. Faith is that certain belief that God is who he says he was, that he will do what he says he will, and he is everything that we need, that he provides everything that we need, and he is close by us. And he, that faith, when we trust in him, that's what stabilizes our mind. But if our faith is not strong, when circumstances hit, then we start to get in a problem because we see the wind blowing like Peter out on the waves. And what was stable and secure, even though it doesn't seem like it, now we start to waver and we look around. That's what got Peter. It wasn't the waves. It was the circumstances. It was taking his eyes off Christ and looking at the wrong thing. Now, the Bible tells us, long introduction, let me, let me be quick this morning. The Bible tells us extensively about the mind. Look at Romans chapter 12. We're going to read verses 1 to 3. There are 160 direct references to the mind in the Bible. And there are many other passages that teach about it. But for our study today, we're just going to really center on this very familiar set of verses. We'll look in a moment at Romans chapter 8. But as I was studying this week, there was one word that really kind of stuck out to me, and I've seen it many times before, and you have too, but I just, I I gained a real fresh appreciation for it. We're going to concentrate verses 2 and 3, but let's read verse 1 kind of as the the foundation for what we're going to do. Romans 12, 1, thank you for bringing your Bibles. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to us a measure of faith. Now, everything in verses 2 and 3 rests on whether we're willing to obey verse 1. Verses 2 and 3 are are a a non sequitur without verse 1. Because in verse 1, it it asks basically the question, will we and do we every day with joy and gratitude and no hesitation whatsoever present our bodies as a living sacrifice to the Lord and are we holy as we offer ourselves? Or are we still full of sin? Remember that the sacrifice in the Old Testament had to be pure. Somebody couldn't bring a lamb with a blemish or a flaw or a lame leg or or something that was in any way impure. They had to bring the finest spotless lamb to the sacrifice to offer to the Lord. And that showed both the measure of the person's understanding of what God requires and also the measure of their sacrifice. Now, Christ has redeemed us by his grace and declares us to be spotless. He says, I, the spotless lamb, have taken your place. That's this table. I've taken your place. I've sacrificed for you. And now you who are impure and were full of sin, now I've removed that sin and I've declared you to be spotless. 
So here's what I expect. Because I've done this work, you didn't have anything to do with it, I did it all. Because I've done this work, here's how you prove the sincerity of your faith. You trust me, you've received my salvation. Now here's how you're going to prove your sincerity. You prove it by not ever going back to the life I've delivered you from. You prove it by not going back to what I've removed from your life. And the proof of you living as my disciple and as my child is to show your love and your worship and your submission to me by sacrificing your will and sacrificing your control every day. So how do we know when we do that? Great concept. We all know these verses. How do we know when we fulfill that? What will be the undeniable evidence that our sacrifice is living and holy and pleasing to God. Well, that takes us into verses 2 and 3. And there are really three. There's a lot here. But but there are really three ways that we can prove that we have made that living sacrifice. Write them down. Let's take some thoughts this morning because the Lord wants to speak to us. First way. We're just going to walk right through verse 2. The first way we're commanded to be a living sacrifice is to not be conformed to this world. Read it again. Do not be conformed to this world. Now, that adjective is really, really important because it sets up the distinctive difference between this world in which the Bible calls us strangers and aliens and the heavenly kingdom in which we're called citizens. Never forget that our residency is not here. We have nothing in common with the world. We don't have anything in common with its morals. We don't have anything in common with its values. We don't have anything in common with its priorities. Our home is in heaven. And Matthew 6 says that everything we do should be with the focus of laying our treasure up there, not down here. And that alone should dramatically change how we live and how we spend our time and our money and our resources. Because of that truth, now go to the next thought. The Spirit tells us don't be conformed in any way to this world. Now, that word means to adapt your mind and character to another pattern. So when we conform to the world, we're willingly walking away from the new life that Christ has given to us, and we are accepting another way of life as preferable. Imagine if I said to you this morning, um, all right, everybody get on your coats. Uh, we're going to get in our cars and we're going to caravan over to a gathering of devil worshipers. And we're going to go in and we're going to, um, to, to fellowship with them and we're going to sing with them and we're going to listen to them declare their devotion to the devil and, 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 and this is what we're going to do next. You would go, you have lost your mind. That is so outrageous, Paul. I, I, I even struggled putting it in my notes. It was so unthinkable that any of us would want to do that. But here is the subtlety of conformity. Whenever we prioritize what the world values, whenever we allow sin to have place in our life, that's essentially what we're doing. Now think about that, because not one of you would get in your car and follow me to go do that. And yet when we embrace the world... That's what we're doing. Now you say, all right, well, that's 
pretty dramatic, Paul. That, that's a little strong and a little extreme. Actually, it's not. Go back a page to chapter 8. Because in the main part of the book where Paul is laying out the theology of justification, being declared righteous because of the work of Christ, where Paul is defining what it means to be made righteous, to be delivered from sin, to be dead from sin. This is chapter 6, 7, and 8, the greatest theological treatise in the Bible, where, where we're, we're delivered, dead to sin, victorious over sin. He says, chapter 8, verse 1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There's no eternal penalty anymore. It's all God, God, uh, all gone. God's not looking at us and going, well, you got to do this. He says, it's gone. Christ has done it. You're mine forever. But there's now practice. And this is in verses 5 to 9 where he says, there's still a commission from me, this Lord speaking, to walk according to my spirit. Look at verse 5. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you're not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Now, we know that we are indwelt by the spirit. We know as believers that God has ownership. And yet the flesh doesn't go away. And the whole temptation that's on our lives, and Paul talks about this in chapter 7, is that because the flesh is still around, it's still trying to pull us back into the old life. Now, there's no logical reason to do that. And yet, when we sin, we walk back into the world of the flesh. And here's what happened. Paul says in verse 5 that our minds then start to get set back on the flesh. The end result of the flesh is death. Christ freed us from death. Christ delivered us from death. He said that has no more bondage over you, has no more control over you. You don't need it anymore. But when you sin, you're walking back into that world and craving it. And here's why that's so dangerous. Look back at verse 7. It says that it makes our minds hostile toward the Lord, resistant to be subject to his word, and unable to please him. Now, somebody might argue, well, well, God has freed me from the flesh. You said that, and he's removed it, and he's forgiven me, and he's given liberty to live. And that's true. Everything about that is true. But there's one thing we need to remember. Liberty doesn't give us license to do what's characteristic of the flesh. I've heard the liberty argument so many times, college, seminary, every ministry I've been in, I've had this debate. Liberty doesn't give us license to go back and live like the flesh. Forget the weaker brother argument. Forget the stumbling block passages. The question we always have to ask at every point of our life is what I'm doing and saying indicative of the flesh or indicative of the spirit? Or to put it more simply, Who will love this action and this word more, the world or the Lord? Now, when we start to analyze it that way, that becomes very convicting. He asks in verse 9, does the spirit dwell in you? The word doesn't just mean is the spirit present. 
The word means, does the spirit have possession? See, because where the spirit is, when the spirit takes control, he sanctifies the space. Where the spirit takes control, he sanctifies the space. And that is evidenced by a nonconformity to the world. And that's an intentional, active, daily action of resisting what the world values and being set apart to holiness. Now, that's proof one. Proof two is in the next line. We prove we're a living sacrifice to God by being transformed. We already know the work of Christ has transformed us, but now there's an active intention here because this word is is very intentional. It's a purposeful change in our lives, in our behavior, in our thinking, in our words that springs from God's grace and from our obedience. And the key here is the definition of that word transformed. It's the Greek word metamorpho. It means to change from one form into another. So let's let's explain that. Based on what Christ has done in and through us, based on the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, based on the filling of the Holy Spirit, we are supposed to be, as believers, as children of God, as his disciples, we are supposed to be completely different than before with no discernible evidence of our past. And let's clear up something here. We are not just a nicer version of our old self. We're not just somebody who has a little bit better morals and less slip-ups. Our lives have been radically transformed by Jesus Christ to the extent that somebody that knew us before Christ should be so overwhelmed and so convinced of what's happened because they look at who we were and who we are now because we have a different spiritual form. Be transformed. That's why the first call is don't be conformed because when you conform, you have the same form. And in this case, it's our old form. He says you're supposed to be transformed. It's a new and different form than before. And there should be no similarity and no connection between the two. I asked myself last night, is there that much of a difference in me? Is there such a radical difference between who I used to be before Christ and who I am now that people would look at my life and say, that guy is a living spiritual metamorphosis. It's phenomenal. I can't fathom it. How could he be so different? Christ has done the work and the spirit has sealed it. But notice the first part of the verb here in verse uh, two. He says, be transformed. That puts responsibility on us. As Christ has transformed you, now live in the transformation. If we aren't showing evidence of dramatic spiritual change, then either we haven't actually been transformed or we are refusing to walk by the Holy Spirit. The fact that he even mentions it should sober us. The fact that he even mentions that it's a possibility that our worship and service to the Lord wouldn't be full of love and gratitude and change. The fact that he even mentions it it is very sobering. Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ. Christ didn't nuance his way to the cross. He didn't just say, well, I'll kind of take care of this for you guys. I don't know. You got some problems here. Okay, well, let's let's take care of some things. Kind of passive aggressive. He went full bore to the cross. 
the Bible says he emptied himself. He became a bondservant. He humbled himself and sacrificed for us, not because any of us deserved it or any of us had any kind of qualification that would justify it. He just says, I'm going to do this because I love you. Now, if he did that for worthless people like us, how much more worthy is he of our sacrifice? And I thought what Francis Chan said in that video was so good that we're just kind of like, well, I don't feel like giving up the sin. I don't know, it's kind of hard. Listen, listen, this is a transformation thing. Only way we're going to stay on fire for the Lord. A lot of you commented last week after our study, wow, I needed to hear that and, and, and I needed to get on fire for the Lord. Okay, it's seven days later. Is that still where we are? Did that video kind of stir you and convict you? Like, oh, yeah, I remember. Yeah, I, I listened to that message and I wrote some notes. Boy, I was, Monday and Tuesday is really going, but Wednesday hit and I just kind of had some stuff that was discouraging. And I don't know, Paul. I mean, you know how it is. Yeah, I do. It's been a lousy week. Why should those circumstances affect our fire for the Lord? Look back at the verses again. Chapter 12, verse 2. Don't be conformed to the world. Be transformed. How? How does that take place? Look at the next line. We'll pray. By the renewing of our minds. Now, what does that mean and how does that take place? That word renew, I've really focused on that word this week. The word renew means a full renovation and a complete change for the better. Be transformed by the full renovation of your mind which will produce a complete change for the better. Now, since this is an active, ongoing expectation of the Lord for his children, that means we are constantly, every day, being called to renovate our minds to match the change that he's created. If you've ever watched one of those home improvement shows on TV, there are two things that have to happen for the renovation to take place. First of all, the old junk has to be removed. The old stuff that's nasty and out of date and dirty and creating clutter and chaos and filth in the house. And isn't it interesting that every time they go in to do that, the homeowner is kind of shocked that it's gotten that bad. I wouldn't want somebody walking through. Oh, let's let's find everything in your house and we're going to completely take it out and tear your house down. I'd be like, yeah, you're going to need to give me a couple days. But the homeowners are always like, oh, yeah, and they're kind of standing there with their head down because that old junk has to be removed. Once that happens, and only when that happens, can the new and clean and fresh be brought into that house. And again, the homeowner is always kind of, kind of surprised by the fresh perspective, and they always go, oh, this is how we should be living. Yeah, this... This is so much better. I've never heard a homeowner come in and say, I want my old stuff back. What what did you do? How dare you lay down a new floor? How dare you paint those walls? New furniture? A new 60-inch TV? No, I want my old black and white. Why would you make this so much bigger and so much cleaner and make our kids happy? How dare you? 
Once they get that perspective on life being different and life being changed, that's how they want to live. Now, that's the spiritual principle of Romans 12, too. Our minds will only be fully renewed once everything that is conformed to the world is removed. Any filth, any junk, anything that's causing stress and chaos spiritually in our lives Everything that we've gotten used to, the dirt that we kind of accept, it doesn't bother us until company starts to come over. That that stuff is dangerous and damaging to our spiritual walk, and it needs to be gotten rid of. And once that happens, our mind then becomes renewed. And we're under the leadership and lordship and holiness of the Holy Spirit. So the question is, what's the junk in your life? What's the clutter in the attic? What's the stuff that that maybe you don't even notice anymore? You've just gotten so used to it that you're not bothered by it, but it's cluttering your spiritual growth. The Spirit is calling you and I this morning to not only remember that there's a different way, but to live in it. Christ didn't die and rise again so we could continue to live in filth. He died and rose again so we would have life and have it abundantly life that is free from the bondage of sin life that is no longer under the sins world's control life that is no longer desirous of what the world has to offer he's given us everything pertaining to life and to godliness not to mention his spirit not to mention the strength of the body not to mention his word not to mention the power of prayer and the depth of of all his promises. Christian, this morning, our minds need to be renewed. We've been given a new way of life, and it gives us a completely different perspective. Let me finish. Let let me illustrate this in a somewhat painful way, okay? You guys good with pain for a couple minutes? This is a nice pain, but it's painful. But you'll remember it. Close your eyes for a minute. Would you start that sound? And would you put up the first slide? And I want you to open your eyes and look at the screen. If that was your view when you walked out of church this morning, I'd like a church on the beach, right? How many say amen? If that was your view when you walked out and you heard that sound instead of 25 and snowing with a high of 7 on Tuesday, God bless us and help us. How different would your mood be? That tough meeting you have this week, how different would it be if it was done in those chairs? Right? Instead of in an office at a cubicle, frustrated, tense. Imagine if you were sitting there. Go to the next slide. That's your hammock that you're going to do nothing on all afternoon. There's no obligations. There's no responsibilities. There's no stress. Go to the next slide. Here's where you're going to eat dinner. Cooked by your personal chef. Go to the next slide. Here's the view you're going to lay down to sleep to. And you're going to get to sleep about 10 hours tonight. Isn't that going to be great? Aren't you going to feel really good? Wake up in the morning. The windows will be open. You feel those tropical breezes come in. 
Now you say, all right, Rhodes, that's great, but you know how much that costs? Oh, I got another slide for you. Somebody's going to give you all that. Those are hundreds, by the way. That should pretty much take care of it, right? You have all that you need. Now go to the next slide. You get all the time you need, too. You don't have to be back for anything. You don't have to do anything. The day is completely yours. Everything's taken care of. You're not on a timetable. And in case you have any worries or fears, this next slide shows that you're completely fearless. You are completely fearless. You are unfazed by something that is as absolutely terrifying as what that guy's doing. He's on top of the spire of the Burj Dubai, a couple thousand feet above the earth. You're you're fearless. Now, that would be awesome, right? How many would take that day today? How many, how many would, would enjoy that? Wow, only half of you? What's wrong with you? Have you looked outside? Total beauty, total relaxation, all the resources you need, all the time you need, fearless. Oh, that's all attainable. Every one of those things is attainable if you have the right resources. And obviously, people have experienced all those things. The point is, that's a different perspective. Sadly, everybody in the world doesn't have the view we have this morning. And I've heard the word a couple times this week. I, I kind of feel trapped. I'm just, oh, I'm just, I'm just going crazy. I feel trapped enough with the snow. Would we take what was just shown if it was given to us? You would feel refreshed if you walked out and you heard the sound of waves and you saw blue water and a sailboat with your name on it and big puffy white clouds in the sky and it was 75 degrees. You'd take that. Now, look back at Romans 12, 2 for a second. I think some of you are crying. That's okay. It's okay. Let it out. I'm not in any way, here's what I don't want you to understand as you walk away. I'm not in any way comparing what Christ has done to that because it pales in comparison to what Christ has done. But I want us to understand that he has given us a new reality. He has given us a different way of living. And our perspective has been radically changed because we've been transferred from darkness to light and from death into light. We have been transformed. Our life has been changed. We have been renewed in our minds. And if that is what has really happened in our lives, if you and I have really surrendered our life to Christ and renounced our old life, here's the question. Shouldn't we be living differently? If that is really our new perspective, we're not trapped anymore by sin. We are free in Christ. We don't answer to the old self's commands. The world can't boss us around. The devil has no power over us. If that is our reality, if that's our new perspective, then as Francis Schaeffer said, how should we then live? If we're on fire for the Lord, if we're just, oh, right, Francis Chan's right. I can't be living. I can't end my life. And they'll stay on my tombstone. Rhodes was lukewarm. 
If that's where we are this morning and we want to be on fire, then we need to live by this verse. Don't be conformed to the world anymore. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And here's the key. Look at verse 3. He says, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. That's what takes us back into the old reality, our pride. And we get full of ourselves and say, I think I know a better way. I have better judgment than God. It's at that point that we stop becoming a living, holy sacrifice to God. And that's a dangerous mistake. The battle is over our mind. And we'll know whether we're walking by the spirit, by the reactions that are produced by our mind. Are we full of faith and worry, excuse me, fear and worry and panic or faith? Are we caught up in discouragement and other people's opinions or do we live to spend time in the presence of God in prayer? Are we full of anger and lust and envy or do we have spirit filled emotions? Are we still in our old life of sin or are we holy and consecrated? If we're really on fire for the Lord, there's only one option. And the Bible says it is our spiritual service of worship. Let's close our eyes. I don't know how the Lord's spoken to you this morning. I know the things he's convicted me of this week. But it may be time right now as the Spirit speaks to you to make some decisions about how you're going to live. I don't ever want to be in love with being lukewarm. I don't ever want to be satisfied by that. But to get out of lukewarm, we have to put off the world, we have to put off the old, and we have to renew our minds. And it's going to start in our minds because that's what the devil's going to attack. So right now, I want to encourage you and challenge you. Go before the Lord. This is your time with him. What needs to be put off? What do you need to separate from? Don't make an empty promise and then go back to living the same way tomorrow. The Spirit of God transforms us. The Spirit of God will fill us with His holiness when we empty ourselves. But where there is self in our lives, his holiness will not pervade that. This is our sacrifice. This is our reasonable act of worship. Lord, we ask you to help us We ask you to help us. The influence of the world is so strong and our pride rises up every single day. But Lord, that's no excuse. You have transformed us. The work of Christ has been complete. And we praise you for that. And I pray for myself this week and I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room that this week that transformation would take hold and it would be so evident in our lives and that our minds would be renewed because the devil's going to go after them as soon as we finish this prayer. He's already going after them. He's already telling us not to do this. But Lord, we know the truth. 
we know that this is the only way to be your disciples. Help us, we pray this week. Keep us from discouragement and fear. Give us a strong resistance. Help us to take that way of escape when temptation comes along. And when our pride stokes up, humble us. And Lord, we'll give you the praise and the glory for what you've done in our lives. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for what you've done. You're so gracious to us. What a blessing it's been this morning to celebrate your table and to sing your praise and to give to you and to study your word and to hear your Holy Spirit teach us. Lord, what a blessing this is. There's nothing better we'll do today. We thank you and praise you for loving us so much and for proving it through Christ. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. We don't have a closing song, but I've been trying to think of a great little chorus that we can sing. Do you guys know Have Thine Own Way, Lord? How many know that song? Four of you. That's awesome. Man, we got to start getting the hymns back out a little bit more, right? Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Thou art the potter. I am the clay. Mold me and shape me after your will while I am waiting, yielded and still. Will you sing that with me? Let's sing that together. Have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. Thou art the potter, I am the clay. Sing this now with meaning. Mold me and mange me after your will. While I am waiting, yielded and still. That's a good word for this week. That's the attitude that our mind should be maintaining every moment. Lord, your way, your will, I'll yield. And you know what? When we do that, God's going to bless us so abundantly this week. This is going to be an awesome week. God's going to work this week. I don't care what stress you have in front of you. God's going to work this week. And he's going to encourage you and strengthen you because he has power for your life. Let's go out in that power. God bless you.